kind of a place is this? Hi. Would you be prepared if gravity reversed itself? I, well, I... The only thing I can't figure out is how to keep the change in my pockets. I've got it. Nudity. Charles. Hold on, wait a minute, wait one second. I think I'm onto something here. This is pure snow! It's everywhere! Have you any idea what the street value of this mountain is? Charles. Wait a minute, wait a minute, hold it! So for this week's episode of Damn Good Movie Memories, I have a very special guest, and that's author Kevin Smoker, who wrote a fabulous book called Brat Pack America, A Love Letter to 80s Teen Movies. So thank you for being on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, Brian. This is great. So I tore through, I, I heard you on uh, the Awesome 80s podcast, which I am an avid listener That's to. That's a fun uh, show. I, I really had a great time with those guys. And so I immediately bought the book from that, um, downloaded it, read it, read it this, uh, this weekend, and uh, shot in the dark and got you to appear on the podcast. So yeah. thank you so much. Um, so prior to this, you wrote three books that were completely unrelated to movies. Two. Two yeah. books. Okay. Yeah. This, uh, Brad Pack America is my third. Third. Okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, so what made you want to tackle movies and specifically 80s teen movies? Yeah, so my first two books were both about books, okay. which – and I had a great time doing both of them and they were fairly different from one another. The first one was an anthology about what does reading mean in the 21st century, which seems like a horribly dated question <laughs> now. And the second one called Practical Classics came out in 2013 and in that one I spent a year rereading everything I was assigned in high school. And that one – is similar to Brat Pack America. Yeah. So it was basically about what does the past have to teach us in the present. Right. Uh, so for the for this one, for the next book, I wanted to sort of you know like hack off the limb with a chainsaw. I was ready. I was ready to do something completely different, and I was definitely ready to. Um, I was definitely ready to move more to, to write more about uh, what is loosely considered pop culture. I don't think books are particularly higher culture than movies or television or music or anything like that. Um, however, when you write about books, people seem to expect a certain level of, uh, I don't know, erudition and maybe even snobbery that I'm, I'm simply not capable of. I'm, I'm just not that way. So, um, so writing about movies was, uh, was a, a, a good, uh, step to the left from all of that. Yeah. And, um, and 80s teen movies, I'd always wanted to do something about 80s teen movies. and But there's a lot of good books about 80s teen movies. Yeah. I mean, it, the richness of the topic means that like a lot of people got here before I did. So, um, so my a combination of my agent and my public who the the guy who later became my publisher mm -hmm. was like well it's great that you want to cover this topic but what do you have to say that's different than what anybody else has to say and i i had no good answer to that question <laughs> so um so i just sat down with a big stack of of dvds and um and started watching great homework. Was, yeah, yeah it was awesome it yeah. was awesome homework you know if i'd had that when i was in the eighth grade oh. and um, as homework, but uh -huh. so I just I, I said I was like oh well something will jump out to me if it's not in the movies then I don't have a book anyway so right. um, and so after you know one long 
dark night of the soul, you know, three <laughs> iced coffees to the wind, I was like, I was like, something's here. And, 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 and I think I was in the middle of, a, of one of the John Hughes movies. Okay. I, I don't specifically remember which one, but I was okay. in the middle of one of the John Hughes movies. And I remember thinking, as a kid growing up in the middle of the country, not on either coast, mm-hmm. thinking there was some, one of the things that was really special about John Hughes was John Hughes appeared to be speaking for every teenager, but he appeared to be doing it from my, my part of the country, which, right. was the, which was the upper Midwest. Mm-hmm. I was from Southeast Michigan, and John Hughes was also from Southeast Michigan. Yes. But as an adult settled in the north suburbs of Chicago. Um, and so this idea that um, John Hughes was opening what America looked like, um, to, uh, what it meant to be young in America by, mm-hmm. by making the center of his world the north suburbs of Chicago and not the place where movies were typically made or set. Um, I love that idea, and I think I, you know, I, in, the, in about 2.46 in the morning or something, I scrawled Brat Pack America on a piece of paper and promptly fell asleep, and uh, <laughs> thankfully it was still there the next morning. And that's, it's like when Keith Richards wrote Satisfaction, he dozed off and yeah, got the riff. Yeah, so absolutely. And then, genius like, comes. Yeah, yeah. Thankfully, I, thankfully I didn't get out, almost get on an airplane that's like right. he did and leave it behind. <laughs> exactly. But, um, but no, it was still there when I woke up, and so that, that's where it all began. Perfect. So you, we'll, we'll get into John Hughes. So... Um, you really get into Shermer, Illinois in the book and mm-hmm. that kind of the fictional town and how um, what I found fascinating was how you kind of put together how John Hughes kind of thought how um, all the characters were kind of connected in the movies he directed, which I never even thought about it that way. But I, I'd love to hear your take on on what you feel the connection to all those movies are. Yeah, I mean, it's not super obvious. Mm-hmm. Like, even if you watch all of John Hughes's movies in a row, right. it's not super obvious that that... that the care that Samantha Baker in Sixteen Candles lives in the same world as the kids from the Breakfast Club, as you know, the Bueller family. Right. It's not. It's not obvious. No. Um, but in the few interviews John Hughes gave, and certainly the people who studied his work after he died, uh, and his family who uncovered you know his piles and piles of notebooks on on Shermer, Illinois, mm-hmm. uh, it, it was pretty obvious that these characters all lived in the same universe. Yeah. And that even though, even if it's not super evident from the movies, um, the likelihood that Uncle Buck was in the same bowling league as, say, John Bender's father from The Breakfast Club <laughs> or right. something like that or, oh. that, or that, like, Kevin McAllister from Home Alone's mom was on the PTA with Samantha Baker's mom from Sixteen Candles. Right. Um, and the effect of that was, I think, as powerful, if not more, on, on movie makers and then it was on fans like right. you and I. Mm-hmm. Um, Kevin Smith has said very exactly. vocally that it, he took the idea of setting of setting all of his movies in the same sort of New Jersey town from John Hughes. Yeah, um, and and I think Jason Reitman, who who is a who is who is a, a strong devotee of the movies of John Hughes, mm-hmm. I think he his he sort of uses that same idea but in reverse because all of his movies are about characters that are in the middle of going someplace. Right, where place is a very unpermanent thing. And I, I, of course, he grew up on movie sets being Ivan Reitman's son, so I can see how he felt that way. But Mm -hmm. the idea that we are defined not by where we are, but where we're in the process of going to, I think, I think is a sort of, is a sort of photo negative of the idea in, in the John Hughes movies that Jason Reitman likes so much. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and you feel that watching, up in the air, or thank you for smoking, yeah. or young adult, or any, or or Juno, or any of his movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, but for for my purposes, 
the idea was that Shermer, Illinois was kind of the capital city of this thing I called Brat Pack America. Right. This idea that America looked bigger and wider and more diverse through the lens of the 80s teen movie, i.e. what it meant to be growing, what it seemed like and felt like to be growing up in America at that time. Mm -hmm. um, and the capital being in Illinois as opposed to New York or, or California Los Angeles, yeah. or, or Los Angeles mm -hmm. was a big was a big part of that. Yeah. Because, I, I mean, other movies always seem to be, you know, it's in Hollywood, it's in Hollywood, it's in New York, it's in New York, but and but never, you know, kind of the the Midwest, where every, you know, the, the casual fan or the, the more, um, less jaded, maybe, fan. Yeah, and, and, and we were coming yeah. off, like, the decade right before yeah. the 80s teen movie was was dominated by, by the first generation of film school graduates. Yes. The and the film schools were all in New York and California. That's right. And so when you think about the movies that were... Uh, uh, big and mm -hmm. prominent at that time. At that time, if you're talking about the the sort of great movies of the 1970s, you're yeah. talking about you're talking about The Godfather yeah. and and French Connection, the French Connection, yeah. and uh, I mean the conversation yeah. is set here in the Bay, yeah. but um, but that's mostly because Francis Ford Coppola from was here. Is yeah. from, uh, yeah. or, or sort of set up shop yeah. here in the Bay. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, you're talking mostly about coastal movies, yeah. uh, movies that take place on either coast of the United States, mm -hmm. and it's really. It's really you start you start to see it a little bit in in movies like Animal House, which yeah. was which was supposed to be filmed at USC, and they and they sort of well, what they they took one look at the script for Animal House and said <laughs> and said screw you and go right. somewhere else, um, which ended up being filmed in Eugene, Oregon, uh -huh. uh, and, um, and and takes its place among the the sort of. Uh, weird creative vibe that was happening in colleges in the Pacific Northwest at that time. That's right. Because that's where, that's of course where Matt Groening came from and that's where uh -huh. The Simpsons came from and Linda Berry, the cartoonist, was yeah. in college in the Northwest at that time and, and those were of course the older brothers and sisters of the, of the, of the Riot Girl move, movement, you know, right. who came from places like Evergreen uh -huh. College. You know, it's, it's not a, it's not a long walk from Animal House and Matt Groening and, and, uh, and Linda Berry to Slater Kinney. Exactly. Um, and so, that disrupts the idea that um, that the, the universe of pop culture is a New York Los Angeles thing. That yeah. it starts rumbling there, and then really, like on the movie screen, it begins. It begins with Breaking Away, mm -hmm. which um, which is which is the summer of 1979, yeah. and is set is inseparable from being set in Bloomington, Indiana. Mm -hmm. um, so what? Me. Um, so you do mention the book that you start from 78 to 89. Do you cover that's the yeah. the time period? You cover. Was it difficult not to include uh, maybe the early 90s as well? I mean, because. You, you kind of showed the intro, but then there are many early 90s movies that kind of um, still have that 80s feel to them. It, horribly difficult. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it sucked, really. Yeah. <laughs> um, the One of the things, I mean, when you're when you're dealing with a topic you like as much as movies, you, you, you don't want to leave everything out. It's like not inviting someone to your birthday. Right. And, <laughs> um, and you, but you realize that, like, unless you want the project to take 10 years, yeah. you have to... If you say the book is about 80s teen movies at some point, well, you know what book means. So what does 80s teen movie mean? Right. And the rules I kind of drew up for myself and really, really kind of on the fly, I didn't give them much thought, sure. were um, for it to be called a teen movie, the main character has to be a teenager, okay. i.e. someone in high school or who has just graduated okay. from high school. So it made it really hard, for example, like... It's hard to have a book called Brat Pack America and not include St. Elmo's Fire, which right. is, of course, where the term Brat Pack mm -hmm. comes from. Um, 
But that's very much a movie about like your first year out of college. Like right. it's a movie about being a young adult, not mm-hmm. being a teenager. So. Right. Um, but you did include about last night. I did include, <laughs> but but only in, only in reference sure, of to, course. to yeah. the John Hughes movies because yeah. I have this I have this pet theory that about last night is what becomes of the kids in the John Hughes movies. Great point. Right? Yes. Um, they when they grow up and move from the suburbs to the city to, right. to Chicago itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like okay, what is the 1980s? Yeah. And I I felt like I wasn't telling the whole story if mm-hmm. I if I didn't begin with the older brothers and sisters of the 80s sure. teen movie. So that's that begins sort of unofficially with Star Wars and Jaws in Absolutely. the middle of the decade and then and then in the late 70s is Animal House and mm-hmm. Fame and The Warriors right. and My Bodyguard and, mm-hmm. and uh, Breaking Away. Yeah. Um, so because Animal House is the earliest of those, I yeah. sort of say the beginning is 1978. Yes. Uh, and thankfully, thankfully for, for, for me, yeah. the... the, the, um, the the '80s teen movie feels like it has a very natural end to me. I think it's, I think it's, I, I think it's pretty easy to sort of to sort of close the door on it with Heather's, sure, which is which is yeah, yeah which, which is a uh, March of '89, yeah, okay, um, yeah. and um, which feels like which feels like which I like to say literally blows up the genre. It does, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it feels like once the genre is capable of being satirized, we're yeah. sort of not in its golden age mm-hmm. anymore. It's interesting about Heather's because I always felt that it, it wasn't a box office. Uh, it didn't really do. No, it was a disaster. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I always felt if it was released in 92, 93, 90, like it would have been totally different. Grunge was around. Yeah, like that uh, America was ready for a movie like Heather's. So yeah. absolutely yeah. agree, and you can feel the sort of pop culture wave yet to come looking at Heather's right. like looking at the at the dyed black hair and yes. the eyeliner mm-hmm. and the and the sort of the sort of moral ambiguity and mm-hmm. the evil is cool um, right. uh, that Heather's sort of is working with. Mm-hmm. Uh, but gone off what you said earlier, yeah. definitely like there are some early nineties movies that um, that I had to sort of let go of. Sure. It was very hard. It was very hard to not include Say Anything, for yeah. example. Yeah. Which, um, which I get asked about a lot. I'm um, sure. And, 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 and I think a little bit because if you go to the 80s um, subreddit mm-hmm. on Reddit, uh-huh. you know, you know how a little alien is yeah. different in each subreddit? In mm-hmm. the 80s, 30s, holding up a boombox. Yeah. So um, it's clear to whoever started that that Say Anything counts as mm-hmm. an 80s movie. Um I think I think because it came out in the summer of '89, and because to me it feels like sort of the beginning of Cameron Crowe's fascination with Seattle, which which sort of do, you know dovetails very nicely with Seattle mm-hmm. becoming you know becoming this pop culture uh, uh, supernova. Sure, into singles uh, and yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it feels and because it's about it's about non traditional families, which is a very '90s movie kind yeah. of thing, and and because it's about. Um, because it has a an unclear ending, which uh, the '80s teen movie was sort of pretty clear with tied what it was talking. Yeah, yeah, a lot of tied up in a yeah. bow. Even even when the ending was even when the ending was bleak, like sure. it was, um, the ending was never. Endings of '80s teen movies were never unclear, and, mm-hmm. and, and say anything is unclear on purpose. And it so, is. Uh, so it, it didn't quite make it. But I, I'd be interested to know, like, what other movies from the early '90s do you think um, qualify? <laughs> That's a good, and I, I should have been prepared for that question. So, oh, just uh, you know, things like "Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead." You know, yeah. that seemed to be, you know, the natural cousin of I don't know um, something like uh, Weird Science or something like yeah, that. Or, uh, I, or you know, something where you're, Adventures in Babysitting. I mean, that's kind yeah. of they seem to be 
kind of hand in hand, and that was ninety one. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, little movies like that where um, no, nothing is coming off the top of my head now, and they will eventually. No, I know what you're yeah, saying. Like a lot of the like a lot of the movies, the like the Dead Poet Society cast yeah, immediately yeah. after. Um, you know, Ethan Hawke had that weird string yeah. of movies like Mystery, Mystery Date. Mystery Date, yeah. Exactly. Um, and uh, I, what was that? I don't think it was. It was. It was basically the bargain. The, the cut rate version of Ethan Hawke. Those, uh-huh. those, uh, Stephen Baldwin was in that movie called Across the Bridge, mm-hmm. which is about, um, which of course being from Michigan was was, <laughs> was a big was a big deal to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that th- those all definitely felt like right, those, um, uh, but they came a few years later. It, yeah, right. Uh, um, when a lot of the actors who were teenagers, particularly in the latter half of the decade I'm talking mm-hmm. about, were sort of in their early twenties but still playing teenagers. Dream yeah. a little dream, um, yeah, because you had the Corys and, and that, absolutely. That kind of, and, but even that was a little darker than your typical eighties movie mm-hmm. as well. It kind of had a weird, weird vibe to it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, you had some great interviews um, from really important directors from the, from the decade, like Amy Heckerling, Savage Steve Holland, Martha Coolidge, Daniel Waters, Heather's. And you got Getty Watanabe, who was famous for as being Long Duck Dong mm-hmm. in Sixteen Candles. Was it difficult to get those interviews, or were they pretty open about being in the book? It was. It was less difficult having a publisher that was based in Los Angeles, mm. because my publisher is sort of used to the the, the uh, Kabuki dance you have to do to <laughs> to. Um, uh, to speak to a, a, a famous in-demand sure. person, um, I, I I think what helped is that the, that I was that I'm I'm totally uninterested in gossip. Like mm. I, I'm really I'm not interested in I, I'm not interested in in who was sleeping with who on a particular set or sure. and. You didn't want this to be Hollywood Babylon. No, yeah. I, di- I, I, I didn't. I, I think that I think there's plenty of that. I don't Absolutely. think I have anything interesting to say about it, mm-hmm. and. The interviews came along late in the process, which was by accident, mm. but a, a fortunate accident because it meant that I had read a bunch about everybody I had interviewed already, and I sort of knew what they got asked all the time. Sure. So when I pitched Amy Heckerling or mm-hmm. Gede Watanabe mm-hmm. or Savage Steve Holland, I was able to say, um, I have no interest in asking you about X or Y, which you get asked about all the time. Right. And so um, I, I think that may, you know, I, I'm guessing here, but I think that I think that may, I, I think it made it seem at least on the surface that I'd be, that I'd be more interesting to talk to than, right. than, than, you know, most of the people mm-hmm. who show up and ask for their time. Sure. Did you learn anything like you totally absolutely did not know, um, from, from any one of those interviews that like shocked you? Uh, um, I, I, it's funny. Like, so most of the directors who made teen movies at this time mm-hmm. were, were significantly out of their teens. Mm-hmm. Uh, the difference is like Kevin Smith made Clerks when he was like 21 or True. 22, mm-hmm. but Amy Heckerling was 29 when she made Fast Times at Ridgemont yeah. High, and and um, and I think Cameron Crowe was only a little bit younger than her. Mm-hmm. I mean, m- most most of these directors were 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 well past being teenagers right. when they made movies about about teenagers, right. great movies. Yeah. Um, not the case with Savage Steve Holland. Savage Steve Holland was like 24 when he made Better Off Dead. Right. Um, so that I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And it was really interesting to see um, that that movie is, it, the movie is very autobiographical. Uh-huh. Um, uh, he, he, when we spoke, he said to me, yeah, I had a, I had a guy, you know, when I was in high school, uh, I was on the ski team and a guy, <laughs> and a guy stole my, you know, stole my, who was better on, better than me on the ski team, stole sure. my girlfriend. And uh-huh. that was the plot of Better Off Dead. <laughs> but the, 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 the sort of, 
you know, surreal doesn't even begin to describe it. The sort of the sort of absolutely comically bizarre directions Better Off Dead oh, takes, yeah. and, and what it includes everything from you know from possibly the best Howard Cosell joke ever told to <laughs> like to like a singing claymation hamburger. The, oh, the fact yeah. that like it's autobiographical and yet it still manages to run off in all of these different directions. Yeah. I mean, you really get the sense that like that like that Savage Steve Holland just took a look at this movie that he basically had no money to make mm-hmm. and it was basically his story of teenage heartbreak and was like he just looked at it like an ELO song or something yeah. he's just like whatever I'm just gonna I'm gonna just gonna just go for it I'm not gonna say no to anything right and it works and it does work yeah. and, and for whatever reason people all know um, Better Off Dead but they kind of forget One Crazy Summer and it's the natural brother or sister to it oh yeah and I yeah. think it's I think it's I, I mean it's very similar to Better yeah. Off Dead and maybe it doesn't have maybe it feels more like a like a band second album than sure. the first album exactly. it's still a great movie yeah I, I I think the I think the there are more there are more veteran comedians in in One Crazy Summer than yes. Better Off Dead. So the yeah. comedy feels um, surer on its feet than it does yeah. in in Better Off Dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and it has and, and it's again like it's it's one of those movies where um, was also autobiographical, but still just just goes off in all oh, of these yeah. bizarre, ridiculous directions in a, in a great way. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I love that John Cusack's characters. Hoops and he's terrible at basketball. Yeah, <laughs> like which I think you, you um, Steve Holland uh, references that in in the interview where it, it, that's kind of autobiographical too. Yeah, he. Um, I said, I said, where did the name come from? Yeah. And I think it was a, I think it was a cartoon character he liked or something like that. I mm-hmm. said, did you play basketball? He goes, no, that yeah. was completely made up. <laughs> it's perfect. Um, he didn't sail either. That was that was made up. Too. Yeah, he, his sport was skiing, which was which yeah. Was, it was both both sports, which you include. Well, you, you include um, Better Off Dead in the sports movie. Yeah. Yeah. Because I was thinking, well, why isn't Hoosiers? Then I'm like, well, it's not really a teen movie, so yeah. It, that was a hard call yeah. because Hoosiers is definitely like of a type. Yeah, it, it's definitely the the small dying industrial town yeah. that clings to that, that has only its high school sports team to cling to. Right, Hoosiers in that way is very much like a proto Friday Night Lights. Yeah, um, or all the right moves, <laughs> or all the right moves. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is and, in the book. Yeah, uh, but Hoosiers is told from the point of view of the coach. Exactly. So, um, it was. Uh, it, it it felt more like it felt more like a movie, a drama about a town, mm-hmm. um, or even a character study of a yeah. of a of a grown man yeah. than a teen movie. Not only Gene Hackman, but Dennis Hopper. I mean, yeah, because yeah. it really gets to that. Um, yeah, I was I was a little I was a little sad that I don't I, I don't find Hoosiers wears as well as mm. as some of those other movies do. Really, uh, which which is part of like why I I didn't want to include it because I didn't okay. want to I, I didn't. I, there isn't much in here that I speak ill of, so okay. I didn't really want to do a whole lot of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, I feel like the the, the things in the, the the different things Hoosiers has going on sort of don't quite add up. Mm. Like it doesn't. It, in the end, to me, it like like how much does it matter that that Gene Hackman's character like smacked a kid once? Right. Like, um, and and has that really like sort of sent him into hiding in this little town in yeah. the 1950s? But it's the, a big deal in the movie. It, it is a big deal in the movie, and. Um, yeah, it's 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 almost like it's almost like Hoosiers is a better movie if Dennis Hopper is both characters. True. If, if, yeah. if Dennis Hopper is is one of the players' drunk fathers yeah. and also the coach. The coach. Yeah, yeah. I think it would have played better, possibly. Yeah. but I mean, it's still one of the better sports movies to ever come out, um, especially about basketball. Um, yeah, Space Jam, not not 
mentioned. But yeah, yeah. No, I, well, I, you know, my it's funny. My my best friend, my best friend who has never spent any time in Indiana, his three favorite <laughs> movies are all Indiana sports movies. Uh-huh. It's Hoosiers Breaking Wait, Away yeah. and Rudy, <laughs> um, um, two of which are. One of which is in this book, one of which could have been in this book, sure. and Rudy comes a little bit later. Yeah, but. and Rudy's like one where, I think it was 93, yeah. and uh, yeah, just off, the, off mm-hmm. the, uh, the time frame. So there are 55 movies included in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, were, which were the toughest to leave out? Oh, um, so Red Dawn was really mm. hard to leave out. Um, I, 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 it, it, there just wasn't sort of a natural place for it. It mm-hmm. didn't have... It didn't have uh, 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 friends. It, it didn't yeah. have other movies I could group it with. Like, I, I, yeah, I probably could have done a a kids save the world chapter True. because there there's a lot of those. There things. is, um, but those are all, more often than not sort of staffed up by younger kids. Mm-hmm. Those are movies movies like Explorers where the kids are eleven or something. Yeah, or movies like movies like Space Camp where the kids are, a, mm-hmm. you know, Space Camp is essentially. Goonies on a space shuttle. Right. But, um, Interesting, not to go off on a tangent, but yeah. Space Camp, I, I had read that it really was harmed by the Challenger uh-huh. um, um, cr- uh, explosion. And it nobody, everyone felt weird about going to see a yeah. movie about yeah. that, especially after that. And it's really a shame because it is a good movie. And yeah, I think, it, I think for what it is, yeah. it's a very good movie. Um, I... Um, yeah, that, so that's one of the. Uh-huh. I, I had to leave that out. I had to. I couldn't find a place to put Red Dawn, and there was also there was the book had to be the book was longer than I had anticipated mm. and didn't flow as well, and so I had to cut um, a few chapters. And so there, okay. there are no horror movies in the book. Right. I wanted. I had a whole chapter on horror movies. Sure. Um, I had. I had a whole chapter on the the sort of adventures and babysitting kind of movie where like nice kids from the suburbs go into the big scary city, right. Right? <laughs> uh, which is adventures of babysitting and midnight madness oh, is yeah. kind of that movie. And, um, and risky business is very much plays on that sort of urban suburban dynamic. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, risky, losing it. <laughs> yeah. That was, yeah, th- th- those were hard movies yeah. to, to not have in the book, especially yeah. risky business, which I think, which I think, I, I wouldn't say, like, it's not the movie you think of when someone says 80s teen movie. It's not the first one that comes to mind. No. But the movie that captures the decade, the time itself, better than any, save maybe, you know, Wall Street right. or something like that, is, is, is Risky Business. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, so which movies um, in the book did you absolutely love as a kid, but now watching it back now um, don't seem to hold up as well for you? Oh, that's a good question. Most of them hold up really well. Like, mm-hmm. like I, that was one of the things that was uh, the best to to, re, to 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 discover researching this and writing this book was mm-hmm. that most of them hold up really nicely. Right. I mean, some of them are some of them are are, are just plain ridiculous. Sure. And and, and you have to and, and if you can accept that they're ridiculous, like like I was fourteen when the Lost Boys came out. And I thought that was <laughs> the greatest movie of all time. Yeah. And now I understand it's 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 basically a, a silly teen vampire right. movie. Right. Exactly. Um, I just think I just think it has for a silly teen vampire movie. It just has such an incredible sense of style like mm-hmm. it looks fantastic yeah. it's filmed fantastic and it makes and it's it's the santa cruz movie Absolutely. Um, i mean there's been a dozen movies you can name filmed in santa cruz mm-hmm. and none of them make better use of santa cruz than the lost boys that's right um, uh I, you know I, killer clowns from outer space notwithstanding <laughs> um uh it's um so yeah I, I think the lost boys is for for what it does is great i just 
when I was 14, I thought it was doing more than it right. actually was doing. Yeah. Um, the opposite one for me is about last night where yeah. I saw it as a teenager and I'm thinking, well, I, I, I like this, but it just doesn't do it for me like Breakfast Club or 16 Candles. But watching it as an adult, I'm like, okay, I get it now. I've been through what they're going through yeah. and, and uh, it had the opposite effect on me. Yeah, I, I think about last night. Um, I, I think about last night relies. About last night was uh, unfortunately. I think it's a good example of it, but it's unfortunately sort of set the mold of one of those movies where you at the center is a is a couple, and then sort of next to them are each of their best friends. Yes, and inevitably in those movies, the best friends are more interesting than and they the are. couple. So yeah, um, so unfortunately, and I think about last night sort of narrowly escapes the the inherent flaw of that kind of movie yeah um but unfortunately like like you spend most of the time watching the second most interesting set of characters that's in right the movies, in the movie and the you movie. almost think at first it's going to be like a almost a comedy and in some of the trailers i was watching i was like it really doesn't go this way at all like there's some serious heady stuff that's going on there yeah um and i i haven't i haven't seen the play mm -hmm. about last night oh, yeah. was based on um and I, I do wonder if the play is is more about because I think the movie almost gets there, and I think, but I think the movie couldn't resist the idea of like Rob Lowe and Demi Moore rolling around naked. Sure, um, because <laughs> I think that movie is less about falling in love than about falling in love as in in this when you're not quite grown up yet exactly. at, this, at this very opportune inopportune time yeah. in life to um, to where you're not. Adult and you're an adult, and you're being asked to make a lot of really adult decisions mm -hmm. simply by virtue of being in a serious relationship right, and figuring it out as you go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So which um, so there have been remakes of some of the movies we've talked about, like about last night, and uh, obviously other ones like the Karate Kid and, mm -hmm. and Red Dawn. Yeah. Um, which remakes do you can you have you seen some of these remakes, uh -huh. and, and which um, do you wish had never been made, and which are you like why well, just leave it alone, leave it as it was. I, I, mind remakes mm -hmm. because I feel like I feel like in general the remakes we've had uh, in the last four or five years of these movies have not I mean there there's always a degree of opportunism to them sure like but in general they've managed to do something different with the premise okay um, and it, it hasn't been just let let's you know let's refilm it with contemporary actors and see and, yeah. and you know and, and and see if we can confuse everybody who's under 40 into thinking <laughs> that, that 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 when you hear the word footloose you're actually talking about footloose 2011 <laughs> right <laughs> um, it's it's not I, I think most of them are not sleights of hand mm -hmm. um, I think I, I think the, the ones that are worse kind of in, in their attempt to to even you know, come at the at the original idea yeah. from a slightly different angle. You sort of miss what's great about the movie. I I, I don't think Footloose is a great movie. Mm -hmm. I, I think Footloose has some really bad moments. Yeah. Um, Footloose has. Footloose. What what Footloose captures? It, it, what what Footloose does? The original I'm talking about. Yeah. Footloose does really well. Is captures kind of the exuberance of being a young person in in a very obvious metaphor. Yeah. Obviously, dancing. Sure. But, um, Footloose has an incredibly charismatic group of actors. Yes. Uh, in not only Kevin Bacon mm -hmm. but Laurie Singer and mm -hmm. Christopher Penn yeah. and. Um, and uh, and John and Lithgow, John Lithgow yeah. and, a, and Diane Weiss, oh, and yeah. young Sarah Jessica Parker. Mm -hmm. Yes, like, there's an incredibly magnetic group of actors mm -hmm. in that movie, and, and you kind of need that if you're going to be watching people dance and celebrate being young for ninety minutes. Right. 
And the remake just doesn't have that. Right. The, the remake, the remake feels like the remake feels like a, 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 a like a Nordstrom ad come to life. <laughs> you know, um, we were watching it. At, it we, we do movie Friday sometimes, and we'll put it on mm-hmm. the TV. And Footloose is on. And my coworker Winley noticed, like, God, Lori Singer just keeps getting like she gets hit by her dad, she gets hit by her yeah. ex boyfriend. She, I don't think I want my daughter seeing this. You know, no, it's like, no. Um, um, it's uh, it, it, you know, it's 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 unnecessarily melodramatic yeah. and it doesn't like and it does it, it's it's a fundamentally a pretty like silly premise like it, it um but it does it does um the spirit of it i think i think there's a there's a ton of spirit and spunk to it yeah uh elan if you will mm-hmm. uh, which which i think is not in the in the remake at all right kind of like flash dance I mean, the plot is kind of irrelevant in flash dance there's a dancing the amazing soundtrack things like that that really yeah. kind of sell the movie yeah, if you if you take Flashdance as a ninety minute music video, it's, it's great. a great ninety minute music video. Absolutely. If you take it as a movie, it's it's super disappointing. It's painful, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and some say the same thing about Saturday Night Fever. I mean, that's um, amazing soundtrack, but it's it's spe- specific moment in time that captures things exactly. You know, that and Saturday Night Fever is uh, we, we we sort of forget this forty years sitting here yeah. in, in the present but Saturday Night Fever is incredibly dark oh it, yeah it, it incredibly uh, it is really like like it, it, I mean it's like it, it's, it's more like cabaret than anything like, it is like we dance and sing because because we are terrified of stepping out into the world right. because the world like is hostile towards mm-hmm. us that's right um, and that's and that's totally the, the feeling you get from mm-hmm. Saturday Night Fever you know this this these characters um disco dance because life offers them nothing otherwise Mm -hmm. um which was interesting when they made staying alive which i actually saw before saturday night fever and mm -hmm. uh i was like what (laughs) i don't know where this movie is going like it's just the craziness of of, um yeah the weird broadway play they did and and things like that but yeah yeah yeah, it's like it's like staying alive is like if someone if someone took all that jazz and like and and like tried to and, and and made it you know, if someone if someone says let's let's remake all that jazz yeah. with outtakes from Saturday Night Fever, it, if that, <laughs> sounds, like, if that sounds like a crappy idea. Yeah. yeah, it is a crappy idea. Thank you, Sylvester Stallone. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the VCR and HBO culture. Um, before the '80s, really, if a movie was in the theater um, and, and you didn't see it and they didn't bring it back, you missed it because really, you know, they may show it on TV every now mm. and then. Yeah. But you, you weren't going to see these movies over and over again. So I really think that the eighties really benefited from repeat viewing and home movies and HBO where no other decade had that advantage. No, uh, yeah. it's certainly not being like the first decade to have that advantage right. the way the 1980s did. And of course, many of the movies that we, we now think of as classics yeah. from this time were not hits no. when they were originally released in theaters and were discovered later because of home video and because of HBO and thank God like yeah. otherwise otherwise would I don't know what we would th- I don't know what we would know as a culture what we would know about Better Off Dead and 16 Candles yeah. and Heathers and Lucas yeah. those are Legend all of Billie Jean. Yeah. Legend of Billie Jean yeah. those are all movies that that that, that have, have lived on in part because they, they were sort of given a second chance at life right um which which I think is great. It's also it's also the beginning. I mean, we think of those technologies as incredibly sort of quaint and sweet and from a long time ago now. It was the beginning of the detachment of pop culture and 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 the sort of single place you were the sort of one-to-one relationship between pop culture and the place you consumed it. Yeah. Um you didn't I mean 
before the 1980s and the invention of the Walkman, like you could really only listen to music sitting on your couch at home mm-hmm. or in an automobile. Yeah. Um, unless unless you happen to be in a public place where it was playing. That's right. Um, I mean, I guess you had the transistor radio and and mm-hmm. and, and, and its its latter day cousin, the boombox. Yeah. Um, but those were those were sort of. I mean, the transistor radio was designed for portability, but you couldn't choose the music that was being no. played on a transistor. It was mostly if you want to listen to a ball game or something right. like that. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the Walkman suddenly mm-hmm. your music walks around with you, exactly. and the Walkman is of course the 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 the, the, the grandparent to the iPod, the iPod yeah. and the iPhone. Uh-huh. Um, the the VCR and the um, you know and HBO are the are the elderly relatives of, of streaming of yeah. um, of the idea the idea that that you have an entire movie theater inside your television set and now laptop or or, yeah. or a tablet is mm-hmm. um, is 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 born at that time right um, and so we really see the beginning of the 21st century as early as like 1981 uh, right? yeah. And it was it was an incredible racket for business owners at, that you would you, you're not going to buy an eighty dollar VHS tape, but you'll gladly pay a couple bucks a week to keep renting uh, Lucas over and over again. Which what we, that's what we did every Friday. Absolutely, we, we'd go I get mean, a movie. first of all, it was amazing that, that a VHS cost eighty dollars. Yeah, <laughs> and, and it did for a long time. Yeah. It was sort of the first Batman movie that was priced at like. I think twenty six dollars. Yeah. it was considered or high. Yeah. yeah, it was considered like like st- practically stealing. Yeah, and so um, uh, so that that changed that that whole frankly ridiculous economic paradigm. Yeah, and then um, that without the, the, you know I, I worked in I worked in video stores uh-huh. for a long time after college and graduate school, and the deal was I mean the, the money the money you know just like if you ran a movie theater, the money is in popcorn and soda. The money is not in, in selling tickets. Yeah. The money in, in in video stores was in late fees. Was yeah. in someone was in someone like 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 kicking the kicking the tape under the under the coffee table or the bed by mistake and mm-hmm. or the dresser or something and, and, and discovering it two weeks later and right. having and having, you know, forty dollars in late fees. That's right. Of course the late fee is the reason we have Netflix. That's right. Like the the origin story, true or not, is uh, of Netflix is Reed Hastings discovers a blockbuster video cassette, uh, or maybe it was a DVD mm-hmm. in in the back of his car, and um, and he says, "Why am I paying you know one hundred and twenty dollars for something that costs like nineteen? Right? Um, I'll gladly pay ten dollars a month, and even if you keep charging me ten dollars a month, yep. it's, it's that's okay, you know. Yeah. That's, so <laughs> so that more. so that that paradigm and it's and the sort of snapback." From it is yeah. how we got is, is essentially how we got the movie rental climate yeah. rental climate we have now. Mm-hmm. Um, which of the eighties teen movies do you wish had a sequel that did not? Oh, you know, I would have loved to have known what happened. For, for the Legend of Billie Jean, definitely, mm-hmm. I would have loved to have known what happened in the Legend of Billie Jean after you know Billie Jean. And her brother grew up. Yeah, like do they are they haunted by memories of being of being cult figures at at some point? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I would have loved to. Uh, same thing with Over the Edge. You know, what mm. are those kids like? What are those kids like in, in their early twenties yeah. as opposed to as teenagers? Um, I you know I, I think I think I think you know the more obvious cases like you know the Ferris Bueller's Day Off is pretty self contained. Yeah, I, I, I in, in, you know in fact. I mean, at, at the end, Ferris even comes on and says the movie's over. You yeah. Know? Um, <laughs> so yeah, um, the Breakfast Club has always left that question open of like, do they stay friends? What becomes of them? And I think, 
I think, but I think the fact that we don't know that is is a big part of what's special about the Breakfast right. Club. The 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 uncertainty of the ending, is, mm-hmm. as 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 triumphal as it all feels at the end. And, yeah. The fact that it makes you want to jump out of your chair and, and it's sing. the cover of your book. Yeah, thank you. yeah, uh, it is. Um, as iconic as that image is, we really, I mean, we don't know what happens. The ending has, has left a lot open. Sure. Um, which is, I think, the real, like, one of the master strokes of that, of that movie. Absolutely. So, yeah. Absolutely. Who were some of your uh, favorite actors and actresses of 80s teen movies? Or name one of each. Oh, yeah. Um, I, like, I, I loved the fact that, that, that Curtis Armstrong kept showing up as, like, the, the weird best friend. Yes. Like, he plays the weird best friend in both Risky Business and Better Off Dead. And he has my favorite line in Better Off Dead uh-huh. where he picks up the snow and he says, he, you know, on the, well, they're out skiing and he picks up the snow off the ma- off the ground and he goes, oh my God, like we could sell this. Someone would think it was cocaine. Can you imagine the street value of this mountain? I'm not getting a line right, but like... Um, I'll put it in. After, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, was, he was such a great character actor and, um, and I... I Okay. Revenge of the Nerds doesn't quite qualify for this book, but sure. he's of course Booger in Revenge of the Nerds. Uh-huh. And then, like, like, you know, er, later in that decade, he pops up as Frank Viola on Moonlighting. Yeah. And then, you know, flash forward twenty five years, and he's Zoe Deschanel's boss on the, uh, you know, uh, on a new girl. And, right. And just, and just as hilarious as ever. And um, I love that he, he's kept going. You know, some of these, uh, you know, Anthony Michael Hall, he's been in things after he played yeah. Bill Gates and. But it's really tailed, like, and he was, you know, he was the star, whereas some of the character actors kept going. Which yeah, was it, there, there's there's an old theory that I think Roger Ebert put forth, and, and it's it's more it's more it's more elastic than it sounds. Mm-hmm. But like the idea that an actor is better off playing a villain earlier in their career than a hero. Yeah, because a hero is like dry white toast. Like, what do you do with a what do you do with being a hero? You just stand yeah. around looking heroic. A villain could do all sorts of stuff. James Spader, right? Yeah. And James Spader is a good example. Yeah. James Spader versus Andrew McCarthy. Yeah. Right? Um, uh, yeah. J- you know, James Spader is is, is going to be able to buy a small island with his blacklist <laughs> money. That's right. <laughs> uh, so. Let me let me. Give, what's another good example? Like this. This is not an actor from this time, but it was an actor I discovered at this time. And of okay. course, he'd been acting like forty years or something at this time. But but John Witherspoon, who who of course plays the plays the angry neighbor in House Party, uh-huh. um, and eventually Friday, yeah. right? And yeah. then and then and then moving forward, yeah. Friday and plays David Allen Greer's father, yeah. Boomerang, and like, an amazing stand-up comedian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, comes from the world of stand-up yeah. comedy, but um, really, sort of. I mean, House Party. I, I mean, I'm guessing the Hudlin brothers sort of probably knew about John Witherspoon from stand-up comedy yeah. and thought he would be, you know, be great in this. And he just walks away with the whole movie. He does. Um, yeah. So I was, I was really thrilled to sort of discover him mm-hmm. um, being um, a little bit younger than the Hudlin brothers and not, and, and not being someone who had a, you know, a, not, not being from a family that had a bunch of stand-up comedy records. Right. Um, so I was really happy to discover John Witherspoon. Um, I uh, well, I like Rodney Dangerfield. I mean, because Dangerfield, I mean, he'd been around for years. And then Caddyshack happened. Caddyshack and, and yeah. Back to School yeah. is kind, are kind of how he yeah. uh, how he how he sort of moved easy from money, the world yeah. of stand up and easy money mm-hmm. moved from the world of stand up comedy yeah. to to uh, movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I had one, I had one other that I I think I mean I I was never like. I never had like a teenage crush on Winona mm. Ryder. Oh yeah, yeah. But I was I was fascinated. I really was fascinated how Winona Ryder seemed m- more than any of her peers to 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 make this very seamless transition from 
being a teenager to being an adult actor. Yeah. yeah. Um, and without, you know, and without sort of, without sort of feeling like she had to showily call attention to it or something. Like Drew Barrymore. <laughs> right, yeah. right. It's just like, it's just like sort of one day she's in, she's in Lucas and, uh, and, and, and Heather's. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I, I'm trying to remember what she did between like Heather's and Reality Bites. There's about four Beetlejuice, years. Beetlejuice, um, uh, yeah, Beetlejuice, definitely. Yeah, I, yeah. Uh, mermaids, and, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and oh yeah, mermaids, great a bunch of those, and then and then you know you blink and she's and she's twenty three and graduating from college and yeah. reality bites, and yeah. then you um, and then uh, I, I mean she sort of she went forward and backward a little bit. I think she was a little a teenager in Little Women a little bit after mm, that, yeah. um, but you sort of you don't. Uh, there weren't these. It was a very, it was a very skillfully managed career. Yes, um, and uh, and now she's reaping the benefits in Stranger Things, which is great. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's see. Might as well, since I work for a tech company, you definitely cover the tech movies of the '80s. And one of the real, um, I think, underdog uh, movies that I was one of my favorites growing up is Real Genius. Yeah. And if you, you the kind of the Caltech vibe, which eventually led into Big Bang Theory and movie and uh, TV shows and movies mm. like that, uh, discuss Real Genius and, and how you think it it really holds up. Yeah, people don't seem to know about Real Genius. And Real Genius is another one of those like video store movies. Yeah. Which really, like was I mean, it was a hit at the box office, mm-hmm. but it was a hit in the summer of 1985 with a lot of other movies like it. It kind it kind of got lost in the shuffle mm-hmm. at that time. I mean, it was that was the same summer as. As Back to the Future, mm-hmm. and as um, I mean, well, did Weird Science come out? Runs? Weird Science, yeah. Weird okay. Science was early. It was earlier that okay. summer. Yeah, it was a lot of. There was yeah. a lot of movies like it sure. that, that summer. Um, but Real Genius is like. I mean, Real Genius is. It, it is not a long walk from Real Genius to Hackers to you know to. Uh, you know, Pirates of Silicon Valley yeah. to to Social Network to to Big Bang Theory yeah. to and and then to the TV show Silicon mm-hmm. Valley like the idea that the idea of technology culture being a bunch of a, a sort of ragtag group of people with outside skills who yeah. all work together for a common goal mm-hmm. you know whether with the common goal essentially being being their own passion for it, not right. um, not a, not a not a, a, a command given to them from outside, but their own interest in it. Mm-hmm. Um, that I mean that that premise sort of that premise also in parallel with Real Genius is big and better off dead too. The, the idea, I mean, the idea actually in in teen movies really comes from Animal House. Like yeah. Animal House is the first like like let's all get together and build something sure. like that, that animal house is the first place that comes from real genius is, is the, is the exemplar of that that has really lived on. It may have inspired um, a lot of people to go get into technology. I think, think yeah. so. Yeah. Like, like I, I, when I interviewed Martha Coolidge, my best friend said, please tell her like Chris Knight, AKA Val Kilmer's yeah. character changed my whole life. And I said, how come? And he said, because he made it cool to be smart. Um, and, uh, and, and the fact that Martha Coolidge, like, made a movie that made Valley Girls cool in 1983 and then two years later made Caltech engineers cool yeah. like uh, in a in a decade where like the idea of cool was pretty fixed it was not it was not super malleable like that, that that's to me that's an enormous achievement and like revenge of the nerds and nerd isn't even a derogatory term anymore nerd is cool yeah like back then nerd was nerd and nerd yeah. was uncool um, it's amazing how in 20 years 30 years that has changed you know? and I think real genius is 
a is a big reason for that. Absolutely. I think Real Genius and War Games are are really the two mm-hmm. movies that made that happen. Yeah. Uh, it, on on film, it happened in a lot of other ways too. Mm-hmm. Um, and and really like. The performance of Val Kilmer as Chris Knight is one of the great comedic performances of that time. I agree. I mean, if you, I, I typically lump it in with, um, with John Belushi in Animal House and Sean Penn as Jeff Spicoli yeah. in, in Fast Times Ridgemont High, and, and also to some degree Get a Wananabe mm-hmm. as Long Duck Dung. These characters are these characters sort of seem to have wandered in from some other movie. Like, yeah. like they're barely part of the movie they're in. They seem to be like living very colorful lives and pausing for a moment mm-hmm. in the movie they're in. But they steal the show. They, they <laughs> completely steal the show and they're fully formed and um, and they they simply exist completely as themselves. Yeah. Um, and they... Uh, and they don't. And the amazing thing about them is they are—they are all figures of chaos. They all create chaos wherever they go. Yeah. And yet it is never mean-spirited. Right. It is. Ne- it is never directed at somebody. I mean, did Chris Knight a little bit? Yeah. Like, but they deserved it. The, the people right. that got it deserved it. Right. Yeah. Um, and inevitably, they always get away with it because their heart is in the right place. As, as yeah. You said, so. Yeah. Um, I. I. To this to this day, my if if my best friend and I want to make each other laugh, we say um, we say I have to ask you something, and someone will say what, and we'll say what would you do if gravity reversed itself, <laughs> which is the first thing Chris Knight ever says. That's real right. genius. Uh, and then um, and I and then and then the answer, of course, is I figured out how to I figured out everything except how to keep the change in my pocket. Right. And then he goes, I know, nudity. Um, <laughs> and I had probably seen Real Genius two dozen times mm-hmm. at some point, and I was watching it with my best friend. This is last year, maybe a year yeah. and a half ago. And that line happens, and we both laugh. And then I, and then he keeps laughing. And I said, why are you still laughing? And he goes, he goes, because that doesn't solve the problem. <laughs> it's just a thing to say. It's a thing to say mm-hmm. when, you, when you're smart enough actually to know the answer to that. Right. So the character is revealed in like, in like 17 seconds mm-hmm. of screen time. That's how that's how well executed that movie. And it's interesting. Val Kilmer kind of started in comedies like Top Secret. Then he goes to Real Genius. And he really, I, I can't remember of him <coughs> ever me. going back to it. I mean, he was Top Gun, and then he became more serious. After yeah, that. I mean, it was the the the, the glaring examples. <coughs> maybe not the glaring examples, yeah. but the the I think the few but very. But great examples are the work he does for um, Quentin Tarantino. Yes, he does his his cameos in Bow. His cameo in True Romance is completely common. Oh yeah, um, and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which mm-hmm. is, which is almost which is almost a satire of the the roles that Val Kilmer played early in True. his career. Good point. I mean, it's almost it's almost like Chris Knight or Nick Rivers in a suit. Right. right? Mm-hmm. Um, you, you touch upon it's a war game, so I'd love to hear more about uh, war games and, and how that kind of gets forgotten in the sense of um, definitely Matthew Broderick's career. Uh, yeah. They definitely, everyone goes straight to Ferris Bueller, but then kind of put war games behind that. But it, to me, that started, especially all the tech stuff, um, to come with, with real genius and weird science and my science project. Yeah. And things like that. I mean, war games is really like, war, war games very ahead of its time. Yeah. Like, like I, I think it feels. It feels a little like it can feel dated because it's so much about sort of Cold War paranoia yeah. and, and so much about this this 
standoff we had mm-hmm. in technology at the time where is technology does technology belong to the few or the many mm-hmm. um, and and that is that is I mean that is a relevant question now, but mm-hmm. but but seems the way it's presented in war games like a passe kind of question. Yeah, um, I um, I think, but but I I really I mean war games is and war games is a thriller. There weren't there weren't a whole lot of thrillers starring teenagers at this time, True. which is which is really interesting. And you know, and and John Batham, who made war games, the the director who made war games, would go on to do these sort of. These sort of really skillfully executed genre movies. Mm-hmm. You know, he came from directing Saturday Night Fever, and then he would do he would do War Games, and then he would do Stakeout. You know, yeah. two or three years That's later, a great movie. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. These, these movies that like they don't scream with originality. No, but like, they're fun. <laughs> but they but they're really really fun, skillful um, skillful uh, uh, plays on a on a genre sure. on a type. Um, the uh, I, yeah I I don't know I couldn't say why it has not why it it, it seems cultier than than real genius mm-hmm. does um, because I think financially it was just as successful as real genius right right um, but it feels it it does feel it does it, it's it's less fun than real genius Definitely, obviously yeah. um, and. Um, and it feels like sort of – it can feel if you're looking at Matthew Broderick's career, it can feel like warm-up exercises <laughs> he was doing un- until Ferris Bueller True. came along. Um, but I think I, I, I would I would recommend War Games any day of the week. Absolutely. Like, you mentioned Valley Girl and um, oh, I think a lot of people – don't forget Valley Girl, but they immediately go to Clueless as like the ultimate teen movie, especially in the 90s, mm-hmm. whereas Valley Girl was really um, the ultimate 80s teen movie. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of of the times, whether calling people Valley Girls or the uh, affliction of speech, how mm-hmm. people talked back then. Uh, explain why Valley Girl um, was so important to the 80s. I, it, first of all, it was Martha Coolidge's directorial yeah. debut, which which was a big deal then. Martha mm-hmm. Coolidge was a protege of, of Francis Coppola. Uh, there were very few women directors at that time. Yeah. It was really, it was really like, in, in terms of mainstream films, it was really her and Amy Hackerling. And then, and then slightly later in the decade, in, in, in more independent films, you get Nancy Savoca and mm-hmm. Alison Anders and people like that. Penelope Spears, uh, yeah, and Penelope Spears, yeah. who, who came from, who came from, who also came from comedy, who came yeah. from producing for Saturday Night Live mm-hmm. and for Albert Brooks, and um, and uh, and of course, brilliant documentaries. Oh yeah, and great documentaries. Yeah. And, uh, the, the three, I mean, the three decline documentaries were just added to the Library of Congress's National yeah. Film Registry this year. Mm-hmm. Um, the th- Valley Girl. I, I don't quite know why Valley Girl doesn't um, transcend. Doesn't doesn't right. doesn't sort of have a place in 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 popular memory now in 2017 the way the way say you Clueless, know yeah. the way Clueless does. Yeah. Um, I think uh, I think part of it because while Valley Girl was a hit, it wasn't an enormous hit, mm-hmm. and because the, the the real breakout star of Valley Girl was Nicolas Cage, but Nicolas Cage has gone so far afield oh, from yeah. from his character in Valley Girl that it's almost impossible mm-hmm. to trace him back to that. Right. Whereas like Matthew Broderick, even even in movies like You Can Count on Me in Election, yeah. still feels a little bit like Ferris Bueller. Mm-hmm. Like like it's hard. You, it's much easier to separate Nicolas Cage from Randy and Valley Girl sure. than it is Matthew Broderick. Which is interesting because Sean Penn uh, played kind of a role that he never really repeated in Spicoli in, in no. Fast Times at Ridgemont High. But he's been able to um, – people still can go back to him in Fast Times and, and still be okay with it. Where, yeah. yeah, I mean he, he – you know, through a very lucky break, Sean Penn – 
Jeff Spicoli, which is which is one of his great performances, still yeah. for, for Sean Penn now seems to be sort of the yardstick by which you measure all of the other performances that Sean Penn has done. Which is like, crazy because he's done so many amazing. Right, things. right, yeah. and and I, I I have a feeling he kind of planned it that way. Sure, I, I have a feeling he he planned to never do a Jeff Spicoli again. Yeah. So everything he could do would be measured against, or would be measured as to how different it was from, right. from Jeff Spicoli. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Val- Valley Girl is. Valley Girl seems to be, and I think this is unfair, Valley Girl seems to be more stuck in that time than, say, um, than, say Ferris Bueller's Day Off hmm. or The Breakfast Club or Sixteen Candles. Um, uh, and it could be that those movies were all operating on, those movies were, were essentially 80s remakes of classic Hollywood movies. Hmm. You know, uh, it, Ferris Bueller's Day Off is on the town featuring high, with high school students instead of sailors. Right. <laughs> um, uh, the Breakfast Club is the Iceman cometh in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, Valley Girl, not just because of the title, but also because of the um, the social dynamic it captures. It is, of course, a Romeo and Juliet story, Absolutely. basically. But it's a Romeo and Juliet story based on this socioeconomic setup of Los Angeles that is no longer true. Right. Um, Rich kids don't necessarily live in the valley. Poor kids don't necessarily live in Hollywood uh-huh. anymore. Um, and and also, Valley Girl is equally famous for the music, which um, totally. yeah. uh, which is a great soundtrack. It is. But it is it, it is it is very much a nineteen eighty two Southern California bubblegum pop soundtrack. Yeah. there's no question about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think I, none of that. I, none of those. None of those things, I think, are fair to Valley Girl, which I think is a great movie and continues to be a great movie. It is, yeah. Um, and um, but I think it, it it gets it gets overlooked because it gets overlooked because of that because it feels like the sort of cinematic equivalent of a bottle of Zima. You know, it's like <laughs> it's sort of stuck in its time and place. You know, um, whether it deserves to be or not. Well, again, we're speaking to Kevin Smokler, who wrote Brat Pack America, a love letter to eighties teen movies. Um, and really, as reading the book, I just wanted to go back and watch all these movies over and over again. So hopefully when you're listening to this, you're going to want to go out and, and either buy the DVD um, or um, you know stream it. But definitely buy Kevin's book because even the movies you hadn't seen or don't, don't remember, you get this new uh, found appreciation for them. So um, let's talk about Back to the Future a little bit. So my go-to thing against the Oscars is... Great iconic movies often get left out just simply because they're comedies or um, for whatever reason. And I think a better barometer, as as you mentioned, is the Library of Congress, where you can really see um, the movie's uh, worthiness to the, to history that way. Um, there was no way Back to the Future was ever going to beat Out of Africa, <laughs> and, but. What movie would you rather watch in 2017? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I Back to the Future in terms of pure enjoyment. I, I don't think any movie from this time beats Back to the no. Future, and I and I've seen it 50 odd times, mm-hmm. and it's as fresh and unique every single time. Yeah. Um. And and and, and people keep coming up with, uh. uh gold to to mine from it. Um. I you know I there's a great book also about 80s teen movies called Life Moves Pretty Fast mm-hmm. that Hadley Friedman who's a who's a, a journalist for the Guardian newspaper oh, okay. in mm-hmm. London wrote and the thing she had to say about Back to the Future which um which I thought was brilliant and I hadn't thought of before is Back to the Future is a movie where the main characters is 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 a teen movie where the main characters are the parents yeah like and that and that 
if you remade Back to the Future now, um, it would be all about it would be all about the the, the 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 it would be all about sort of Marty McFly as a superhero trying to correct the past so he would exist in the present. That's right. Uh, whereas Back to the Future gives itself room to really be. Uh, the character of Marty is a catalyst, is a catalyst to the parents getting reunited. Mm-hmm. Um, and the soul of the movie is the two parents. Absolutely. Um, so Back to the Future is a movie starring a teenager that isn't afraid to be about grown-ups, which, right. is, which is really, I think, saying something. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's uh, and it's just, uh, it's God, it's just so much fun. It it's, is. I mean, it's... Um, it, and you mentioned in the book, like you became Marty McFly. I, I was the same way, and yeah. um, that I wanted to live uh, his life. I wanted to be just like him, you know, and, and I, go on these adventures. And I think it's remarkable that so many people did. And like Marty McFly came from like a kind of a hopelessly, you know, a hopelessly, uh, a, a, a hopelessly sort of loserish family, and yeah. he didn't have any money, no. and like. And he, he clearly doesn't have any friends his own age. <laughs> like, right. it's like his, his one friend is sort of the town weirdo. Exactly. Like, um, it's uh, for some somehow Marty McFly managed to be super cool and yet have none of the advantages no. that like that, that like tip that typically super cool teenagers right. have. Like he very easily could have been Revenge of the Nerds because yeah. that's nothing he did was was cool, but on paper, but it seemed cool. I don't know. Yeah, but M- Marty McFly had that. You know, Marty McFly had that Ferris Bueller quality, minus yeah. minus the sort of advantages of being of clearly being sort of upper middle class mm-hmm. and a super popular kid in school, yeah. which Ferris is, but Marty is not. Right. Um, uh, of of sort of always of really being good at thinking on his feet and always yeah. having kind of a kind of a funny retort to things, yeah. and um, and being and being and and Marty McFly is genuine in a, in, in a way that Ferris Bueller is not. Right. Like um, Cameron really has that. That role in mm-hmm. in, in Ferris, um, uh, but Marty McFly, you, you really it, it, the the biggest the biggest problem with Back to the Future two and three is Marty McFly is is kind of exposed as an asshole at times, right. which is a shame because yeah. that, you don't get any of that in no. um, in uh, in the first movie. So um, which one did you like better, two or three? I, I think I think two is a better movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I think. I think they both they both do their very best with the material. There's just there's just not a whole lot there. Right. There really isn't. Um, do you think um, how how would that whole movie have changed if Eric Stoltz had gotten the role like they had planned, like he had done yeah. the screen test, as opposed to to Michael J. Fox, who was born to play that role? I I, I don't know how light the movie would have been able to be on its feet. Right. You know, I think Eric Stoltz like like. Eric Stoltz is precisely the right actor to anchor a movie like some kind of wonderful, exactly. which ends happily, but it's asking some like very serious questions, yeah. like some very serious questions. Even though it's cast as teenagers, it's like it's asking even more seriously than Pretty in Pink does. Like, yeah. like what is important to you, and what what do you value, and yeah. like um, she's and, wearing his future, yeah, <laughs> and, and when you know, and when and when is a kid an adult, and when do parents have to let go? I mean, those mm-hmm. are. You need you need you need someone like Eric Stoltz with his with his gravity and his instinct for like uh, and and the subtlety he brings to it. I, I uh, Michael J. Fox, God bless him, is it, 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 it does not have that range right. as an actor. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And the reason he works so well as Marty McFly is because there the character that that's basically what is asked of that character. Right. The character is meant to be to be likable and to be fun and to propel the movie forward, which moves it like with a plot was a breakneck pace. Yeah. Like, like there isn't a single wasted moment in, in Back to the Future, no. and it's over two hours long. Mm-hmm. Um, Whereas, you know, Some Kind of Wonderful is 90 minutes long and feels like it's wandering at times. Yeah, I mean, with good reason. Yeah. But, it, but it doesn't, it doesn't, um, it feels, it, 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 it feels not in a hurry to mm-hmm. get anywhere. Often when I talk to my friends, they, they all know The Breakfast Club, they all know 16 Candles, and they forget Some Kind of Wonderful. Why do you, why do you think that is? I think because it wasn't a hit, mm-hmm. um, because it, um, it starred actors that didn't really, I mean, save Leah Thompson, didn't really appear in other mm-hmm. In other uh, movies of that, in other teen movies of that period, yeah. Um, uh, but Mary Stuart Masterson is just so good. It's a it. totally unique character. Yeah. It, it, it's, I mean, she, 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 and Ducky are probably yeah. the two most unique characters. John Hughes. I mean, John Hughes created better best friends than any than <laughs> any filmmaker ever. Because if you yeah. put Cameron and Watts mm-hmm. and 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 um, Ducky together, those yeah. are three of the most unique characters in movie history. Sure. Um, some kind of and also like some kind of wonderful was at the tail end of that Good period. Point. It was the last movie John Hughes did about teenagers, mm-hmm. and he didn't direct it. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and I think I, I know I said this earlier. The big thing was it wasn't a hit. Yeah, it was. Um, I, I think it's magnificent. And I, I do too. Yeah. I think it's one of those. It's you know, its thirtieth birthday is is this month. Oh, and okay. so um, I think. Um, I hope it. I hope it's given its due. I do too. Um, it, it is, you know, for for a filmmaker that was, you know, re- that really, really kind of put soundtracks on the map. It is far and away the best soundtrack of yeah. any of the John Hughes movies. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it has. It has. It is a lot to be proud of. If you, if it you absolutely me. does. Mm-hmm. Um, the Goonies. Um, you, you, I don't know if you want to give away the story. People will have to buy the book, but there's almost a sad story about the Goonie house and and the woman that owns it. Yeah, yeah, and and, and I think people know that that the that the Goonie ha- that the the woman who owned the Goonie house no longer lets people come and visit because right. people were um, abusive yeah. to her and to uh, her family and to the house, and it's really a shame. I, I I sort of took that story as as part of of a group of stories about. Um, fans' relationship to the real-life places from these movies. Yeah. Um, it's in a chapter with, um, you know, with the Footloose locations, in, in which are in Provo, Utah, mm-hmm. and, um, and Mystic Pizza in, um, in, in Mystic, Connecticut. Yes. Um, and the, uh, and it, yeah, and, and, the, and the celebration of Stand By Me Day that typically happens in, that typically happens in the summertime in, in, uh, in Brownsville, Oregon, yeah. where that movie was filmed. Um, it is a, it is a sad story. It, it's a sad story, and and I you know I can't I, I can't claim to, to to be nostalgic for it because mm-hmm. I wasn't you know I the Goonies weekend I came to in Astoria where mm-hmm. that house is was the house was open and available, and that was the last time the house was open and available. Right. But I wasn't. You lucked out. <laughs> yeah, I lucked out. Yeah. I, and I, but I wasn't present for the earlier Goonies uh, um, weekend celebrations mm-hmm. where where you know where. Cindy Preston, who owned the house, would like let people in, and uh. she would let them take pictures in the attic and mm-hmm. things like that. I, I, I was I can't claim to have missed any of that because right. I wasn't around for it. Um, yeah, it is a sad story, and, and and there's a and I think it I think it reminds us that like that like you know the 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 power of a movie place is that you feel like 
is that you feel like not only when you are there, not only do you remember the first time you saw the movie, but you also, uh, but you're also stepping into the movie. Um, but you're stepping into a place in the real world. Yeah, and and and, and that requires treading lightly, right? Because it is, it, it doesn't. The place doesn't exist for you to come and reminisce about. That's it. right. Um, and it's hard because these movies are almost like our, our family. You know, mm-hmm. they're, you're watching them over and over again. You almost feel like you're one of them. And uh, Malin, who's on this podcast a lot, uh, you know, he thought he, he was a, a Goonie. Yeah, that's, mm-hmm. that, was his, that was his childhood. I, I, was, I was very fortunate. When I went to Goonies Weekend, I made friends with people who I, I would, probably would have never run into sure. in real life. And, and we call each other, we, we, you know, we keep in touch and we call each other each other's goonies. And I, <laughs> and I do wonder if, like, if we had met in some other context or even if we had met at, at, at a celebration for some other movie mm-hmm. that wasn't so much about the bonds of friendship, yeah. if that would have happened. You know, I, I the real, I, I love the goonies, but I, I to me, like, like the, its achievement that outshines all of the rest is is how beautifully the cast works together. Absolutely, like like the the, the casting and the chemist the casting is 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 perfect. Yes, and the chemistry the cast has together is 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 remarkable. Yeah, um, and not the least of which, if you consider that in. In the movie, all of those characters seem to be about the same age, right. within within one or two years of mm-hmm. each other. In reality, you know, like Josh Brolin was twenty, and and and, and Jeffrey Cohen, who played Chunk, was ten. Crazy, like yeah. <laughs> I mean, there was there was a lot. There was the, was that Josh Brolin's debut? Yeah. From, okay. Uh, yeah. There was a lot of yeah. like there was a lot of space between like yeah. those characters were th- those actors were not peers, right? Uh, and yet they they play. Peers in France, so convincingly. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, probably the most famous of the kids was um, Data, who, who was in uh, Temple of the Doom. But, yeah. But before that, so. Yeah, um, and, and you know Corey Feldman had been oh, had been point. doing yeah. stuff that's true. before that. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, you're right. I mean, most of those people were just kind of starting out. Yeah. Um, and uh, and the villains are, are so priceless, the, the Fratellis. And, oh yeah, yeah. So yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, Joe Pantoliano is talk oh, talk, yeah. talk about someone who like who. It had a great run as a series of villains at that time. Yeah, like, um, absolutely. From Risky Business to The Goonies to... Uh, and and, and uh, the Mama Fertelli ended up being in Don't Don't Throw Mama from the Train. Or go, uh, Throw Mama from the yeah, Train. Yeah, yeah. It, the, one, of the, one of the really... You know, obviously Anne Ramsey is not mm-hmm. with us anymore. Right. But one of the really neat things that I found out, you know, going to Goonies Weekend and talking to some of the people from the cast is that everybody loved Anne Ramsey. Anne Ramsey, Anne Ramsey was a a really really sweet person. That's cool. Yeah. Um, and um, and was also uh, and was very I think was sick as a child. Really? So was very was a very small and slight person. Where you, when you see Anne Ramsey looking big and stocky, yeah. it's, it's all padding and clothes. Interesting. It was actually so. There's a moment in the Go- <laughs> there's a moment in the Goonies, um, the moment when Sloth throws Mama Fratelli off the ship. Yeah. If you look carefully, Anne Ramsey weighs like a hundred pounds. And Sloth is John Matuza. And John, was, full, yeah. it was an ex NFL player, yeah. but Anne Ramsey's body double was like a 200-pound woman. <laughs> and so there's a moment when you, and you can see it on screen because it's mm-hmm. captured on screen when Sloth picks up Mama Fratelli mm-hmm. and buckles because John Matuzak, the actor, thinks he's picking up 100-pound Anne Ramsey and is actually picking up... That's uh, hilarious. Is actually picking up 200-pound stunt double. So um, I have to go back and watch... Now I want to really yeah. zone in on that. That's so good. Um, I, I just think... I think it's really, it's really neat that... Uh, 
that particularly because she's she's deceased that everybody yeah. had such nice things to say about yeah. Ramsey because we have this image of her as the great one of the great uh, witchy villains, villains yeah. from that time and, and she was really yeah she was really just a, I guess the the Wicked Witch and the original Wizard of Oz was the same way like she, she was yeah. so perfectly cast but she could never live down that role yeah I mean that that was you you may remember if if you were a child at that time mm-hmm. that um, that Margot Hamilton who played the Wicked Witch yes. of the West did commercials for the American Humane Society yeah. <laughs> and so you would see Margot Hamilton who was who was in her seventies yeah. at that time, you know, sitting, you know, sitting in an easy chair, looking like someone's grandmother, yeah. petting a cat, <laughs> talking about how you should have your cat spayed because it's inhumane. To, right. um, and and if you look very very carefully, you can see right. you can see the face of the wicked witch mm-hmm. of the West. The same person that wanted to get rid of Toto for for all existence. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah exactly, great. exactly. It was it was a big time animal lover? Yeah, like that's awesome. Um, the Karate Kid. So growing up, I loved, loved, loved Rocky, and the natural next movie that I got into was The Karate Kid. Oh yeah. Um, what did The Karate Kid mean to you growing up? I, I you know, I, the thing that that I cottoned to about with all of those movies, with Rocky and with The Karate Kid and with Back to the Future, was really like the the the, the, the friendship, the mentorship between between someone who was my age right. and an adult. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I found I found adults really baffling when I was that age. Mm. And, and to to have an adult that was also a friend, um, that seemed that was a really special thing that yeah. I didn't have in my own life and I really I really wanted. Um, I you know the Goonies is different. The, the adults are barely a presence sure. in the Goonies, and um, and I what I wanted from the Goonies was like a gang of kids to like ride bikes with and have Absolutely. adventures with. Um, the Karate Kid, I, the Karate Kid, I think is is a very special movie, and it's mostly special because of the because the Karate Kid is really like a movie. It's really a movie about friendship. It's really a right. movie about friendship and. and a teacher-student right. relationship. So where Mick and Rocky were kind of, uh, uh, Mick was very crusty and kind of, but got the most out of Rocky. Yeah. Mr. Miyagi was more fatherly because Daniel's dad had passed away. Yeah, and and the sense you get, I mean, the sense you get is in Rocky is that Rocky is young and inexperienced, and Mick is over the hill. Yeah, and so Rocky stands for Mick's sort of last chance. Right. And whereas Mr. Miyagi, whereas Mr. Miyagi. Does more for Daniel than 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 Mick does for Rocky. Exactly, yeah. mm-hmm. um, and um, and I think that yeah, I think that he he's definitely like a stand-in father figure. But I think yeah. I think it's more consequential. Like it, it's more consequential that Daniel is new in town and has no friends. Yes. And, um, uh, and when he does meet a friend, he immediately the, the friend immediately turns on him after he gets beat up by the yeah. perennial bad guy William Zabka. Yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, poor William Zabka, <laughs> <laughs> who plays a great, who, who's frankly is a great bad guy yeah. in that in that movie. I was always surprised because we had mentioned bad guys. You want to play a bad guy, but after just one of the guys and back to school, you didn't see much of him after that. No, no, yeah. he was in he was in a small role in uh, European va- in European Vacation. Oh, that's, that's very true. Yeah. And in Hot Tub Time Machine yeah. and How I Met Your Mother. Yeah. He's, he, 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 he went that sort of um, he went that sort of Neil Patrick Harris of yeah. satirizing your past self, which is of, great. Which is great. Um, I, I, I talked to him for not for this book, but for a, a piece I did for Salon. Oh. And, uh, he's a very he's a very interesting guy, mm-hmm. um, and it was really it. He didn't he didn't have much to say about the experience of filming the Karate Kid, really. Um, but he did have a lot to say about the how about 
how the cast has related to each other afterwards. Right. And, and who knows if that would have happened if the Karate Kid hadn't been the ginormous success that it was. Mm -hmm. But the cast is all feels like they were part of something very special. Right. And um, William Zabka and 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 Ralph Macchio. Um, uh, sort of reconnected ten or fifteen years ago, and have mm. stayed friends since. That's great. They're, they're, Ralph Macchio is is actually significantly older than than William Zabka. Yeah, well, he was, I think he was twenty two when he when he filmed the Crown yeah, of Kids. And, and yeah, his, and his and his and William Zabka also had kids later. So Ralph oh. Macchio's Ralph Macchio's kids are college students, and William Zabka's kids are elementary school wow. students. <laughs> um, and. Uh, and and everybody and everybody in that movie was close to Pat Morita. Like like all of the all of the young people in that movie had a very deep soulful mm. uh, uh, friendship with Pat Morita, mm. um, and and they were all present at his at his funeral. Mm -hmm. um, and apparently, I, I didn't I didn't ask him too much about this, but apparently all of the um, all of the Cobra Kai guys are are. are in touch with one that's another awesome. and hang out and stuff like that's that. That's what yeah. you want to hear. I mean, yeah. that's, that's how I envision, you know, like after that, they, they bond and, and do whatever they have yeah. to do yeah. afterwards. Um, I really like that you covered the hip-hop uh, generation of, of the 80s. And to me, uh, even though it's not a great film, Breakin' and Breakin' 2, um, Electric Boogaloo, which is the, the common punchline for every mm. bad sequel. Yeah, yeah. Um, introduced me to hip-hop music. Um, Beat Street is a better movie, but yeah. Breakin' was, um, I think, campy enough for someone that was seven or eight years old to really get right. into it. And was a hit where, it, where Beat Street was not. Right, yeah. and so, uh, personal story, my mom uh, had figured out how to dub movies from the home video camera into the VCR and but and and dubbed Breakin' 2, but for for some reason didn't dub Breakin' the original uh, Breakin'. And my only guess, is, and she never explained why, was you can only have so much Breakin' in your house <laughs> at one time. But um, yeah, I would watch Electric Boogaloo over and over and over again. Um, but Beat Street is a better movie, and and you have an interesting story about Breakin' why that even came to be come to fruition. Yeah, yeah, it was a, a total opportunistic story. The yeah. people who made Breakin were the same sort of sort of Israeli huckster, you know, huckster mm -hmm. movie producers who also made, you know, uh, Conan the Barbarian yeah. and Canon, right? And, yeah, Canon yeah. films. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, and uh, Red Sonia and I had a <laughs> lot of really silly movies like that. And one of them, one of them's daughter, you know, saw kids break break dancing uh -huh. on, on, on the Venice boardwalk. Mm -hmm. Mentioned it to her father, and her father said, "Is this a thing?" And she said, "I think it's a thing." Yeah. And he said, "All right, well, let's let's get a movie made like really mm -hmm. quickly." And that's what they did. And, yeah. and it shows, like like Breaking isn't isn't a great movie. No. It's frankly a lousy movie. It is. <laughs> it's a lot of fun, yeah. and it has it is great. It is great dancing. It is oh, yeah. incredible dancing and great songs. It is, Ice T is in it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it would be better off. Yeah, it, Ice T is in it. Yeah. It would be better off if it were if it were eight little music videos than than one movie. Great point. Um, but uh, it um, other than Breakin', mm -hmm. most of the of the first of the movies about hip hop at that time took place in New York. Yeah, uh, and proudly so. Yeah, Proud, and we're sort of we're sort of. Uh, almost jingoistic about the fact that mm -hmm. they took place in New York, um, and I think it. What I the, the idea I put forth in the book is that this was hip hop early on in its days, trying to create an origin story for itself. Sure. Basically, trying to say that this is where it all began. Mm -hmm. um, and as we know, origin stories for music are never a hundred percent true. No. Uh, music usually begins in several different places. Mm -hmm. But the you know Wild Style and and Crush Groove and yeah. Beat Street were all attempts to say, just like they said, jazz was born and you know in. Um, in uh, what's the name of the square? And it's now called Louis Armstrong Square, mm. but I think it was called Canal Square. Okay. 
in New Orleans. They wanted the jazz was born there. And the <laughs> jazz wasn't just born there. Right. But that's but that's the narrative they give. It was like yeah. blues is only um, started in Mississippi or something right. like that, but it was right. in Chicago and St. Louis. And yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so it was important for me to have those movies in because I you can't really tell the story of eighties no. pop culture without the the ascendancy of hip hop, mm-hmm. and also because it, it was very important to me that this not be a a, a white film story sure. because I don't think it is. I, no. I, I don't think the story of eighties teen movies is only about white teenagers, mm-hmm. and um, and I remember being in high school and um, and feeling like. House Party was the most fun I had had at a movie theater in in ages. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I think I, I think I saw House Party ten times yeah. in the theater because it was so much fun. Like, um, I and, and so I want it was important to me simply because House Party was part of my own teenage viewing, mm-hmm. and it is about teenagers that yeah. it be part of the story. And then I realized that that House Party is kind of the natural end to the first generation of hip hop. Great movies. point. Not mm-hmm. the least of which is the characters all mention. Crush Groove and Beat Street and and Wild Style. That's right. And so they they're obviously sort of younger and a generation removed from sure. those. Um, it was interesting about Crush Groove because as you, as you mentioned in the book, uh, Def Jam really hadn't been around that long, so no. it's almost like a, just a promotional tool. Like, let's let's promote the Beastie Boys and, and of course Run DMC and, and right, like right. That. Let's make a movie about our origins when right. we're like eighteen months old. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, it was a little. It was nutty, but. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's a great snapshot in time. So, yeah. It is. It is because it's 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 exactly at the time when money is coming into yeah. money and, and interest from outside mm-hmm. the, the the community is coming into the culture and right. Um, and you know it's and all of those movies. I mean, all of those movies are set in the present day. Yeah. But are really about you know, three or four years before those movies, you know, wild style is, it comes out in 1983, but is Mm -hmm. in the history of hip hop is really about like 1977 or 78. True. Um, Crush Groove we've just talked about is, yeah. of course, about the origins of something that's about two years old. Yeah. Beat Street, you know, Beat Street, same thing. Beat Street, Beat Street does not, uh, the, the, the culture feels, Beat Street comes out in 1985. Mm-hmm. The culture feels much younger than that. Yeah. Um, yeah. um so uh, yeah, I, it, the, it, that was that chapter frequently gets pointed out to me by people, and, mm-hmm. and I'm glad. I'm glad it's in there. Yeah, absolutely, I am too. Uh, one last movie, uh, My Bodyguard. So I, I I remember seeing this as a kid and, and loved it, and it was it's darker than your typical buddy movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it was interesting because I think a year prior, um, Chris Makepeace was in Meatballs. Mm-hmm. And he kind of played the same shy little kid uh-huh. uh, in this too. But this time, he didn't have uh, Bill Murray protecting him. He actually has to hire someone to protect him from, from Matt Dillon, the bully. So uh, talk about My Bodyguard. You know, I, 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 for some reason, I had it in my head that My Bodyguard – that. I had it in my head that my bodyguard like took place in New York and maybe it was because Matt Dillon looks like, you know, looks like such a sort of quintessential New York York bully. Uh Um, And of course it opens with this absolutely majestic shot of the main character riding his bike down Lakeshore Drive and it's unmistakably Lakeshore Drive in Chicago. Uh Um, And this is, this is a, you know, this is, this is a, a movie that takes place that is incredibly proud to take place in Chicago. Right, it makes use of all of the things we think we we know and love about Chicago. There's a great you know motorcycle riding oh, yeah. scene where they go past you know they go past the the 
Alexander, uh, the Alexander Calder sculpture in Dealey Plaza, the same place where, you know, six years later in Ferris Bueller's Day Off Camera would yell, you're crazy! Yes. <laughs> you know, um, as Ferris, you know, hops on the German Day right. Parade float. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the Picasso statue there and the Lakeshore Drive. And um, mm-hmm. it's, it's, a, it's an incredible... It, it is a movie about kids and it takes place proudly in urban America. Yes. Where the message we get from most of this decade is that urban America is like a childless scary place. You right. know, sea adventures and babies. Exactly. <laughs> um, and my bodyguard is ahead of its time. My bodyguard my bodyguard is a movie, you know, is a movie that kind of quite by accident predicts uh the urban renewal that would come later. Right. You know, flash forward 20 years and you get a movie like Perks of Being a Wallflower, which ends, you know, with this with this gloriously triumphant moment of the three friends in the movie in an, in, in, in an open-backed pickup truck racing through the Fort Pitt tunnel, which leads right into the middle of downtown Pittsburgh. And the music swells and the last scene you see is the skyline of Pittsburgh. Yeah. It is it, it, it is incredibly hopeful and warm and beautiful and the image you take away from it is Pittsburgh. Yeah. Like downtown Pittsburgh. Yeah. You make that movie in 1983, they're going the opposite way. That's right. They're going the opposite way out the tunnel and <laughs> Pittsburgh is receding in the It's all the right moves, you know. Yeah. Trying to get out of town, I got to get my football scholarship. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and and my bodyguard which my bodyguard was really ahead of its time yeah. in that way. And and, yeah. li- and like breaking away, it oh, has yeah. no the characters are just human beings. Yeah. The teenagers are just human beings. There's no they don't represent anything. Right. Um, which was which was really a break from what had come before yeah. with movies like with movies like American Graffiti, mm-hmm. where the teenagers, where, which is a movie about teenagers but intended for adults. That's right. Um, uh, to, to, to look back at their past, right? Yeah. right. Um, another great thing about My Bodyguard is Martin Mull and of course Ruth Gordon, who was famously in Harold and Maude. Absolutely, so, yeah. absolutely. I shortly, I don't know. I think I feel like she died shortly after mm-hmm. that. I, I actually don't know when Ruth Gordon died. But yeah, like, yeah. I, I really like deep bench in terms of casting yeah. for a movie that was clearly made for no money and um, right um yeah and uh you know yeah matt dillon i think it is third film as mm-hmm. as the villain and um uh and the yeah the the ending is a mess the, it the, is. The, the ending is a mess and not necessary and yeah you mentioned that you may yeah. be better off Turning the movie off ten minutes before. <laughs> well, it's almost like okay, we built this up so much, we got to have the you know the, the ending fight scene. Yeah, I mean, and, and and that that part of the Lincoln Park Zoo, it happens in the, it happens by the pond. The yeah, the part of Lincoln Park Zoo is such is so prominent on the like you know the path you walk through to get to the Lincoln Park Zoo. You can't avoid that pond. Right. It's a wonder, like after that movie came out that the Lincoln Park Zoo didn't have to spend like four or five years breaking up fights in front of that pond. <laughs> Reenact, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, because, I mean, it, 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 it's so obvious oh, where yeah. that scene happens. Mm-hmm. And, and, and if you visit the zoo, you can't not go past right. the pond. So. so we've been speaking with Kevin Smoker, who wrote um, Brat Pack America, a love letter to 80s teen movies. Uh, what book, uh, do you have any idea what you're going to write about next? Yeah, um, I have several ideas. I, I, I There's a couple of ideas that are about movies there's a book about there's an idea about television that i that i'm thinking mm. about um 80s television yeah maybe. Oh, okay. i mean like i think i i i'm not sure that book has been done yet okay but um but that i could see sure. i could see having a lot of fun with a book about of 80s course. television yeah um i 
I, several ideas, okay. and and it is super tempting to be like to to, to sort of chase them now. Sure. Um, but I, I really I, I I'm it's now the beginning of February, and I'm I'm scheduled to be on tour for this book mm-hmm. until at least mid April. Yeah. So I need to I need to stay focused. On that. So de- where where can they find out all your tour dates and things? Yeah, like KevinSmokler dot com, which is K V I N S M O K L E R. Um, I'm on Twitter at Weegee, Weege W E E G E E. I regularly post on Facebook mm-hmm. also tour dates under my name. Uh, coming up. Uh, end of Feb, uh, mid February, uh, Phoenix, Albuquerque, and Portland, mm-hmm. uh, and then March, uh, Cincinnati, Louisville, um, uh, and Austin. Okay, and they can buy the book at all the normal places. All yeah. places yeah. wherever fine books are sold. Well, yeah. definitely run out and buy this book if you are a fan of this podcast. If you are a fan of of eighties movies and eighties teen movies, and really just a fan of movies, you are going to love this book. Thank you so much, Kevin. Oh, you are welcome, Brian. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed my discussion with Kevin, be sure to go out and buy his book, Brat Pack America. It's a great page turner. It is super fun. And you're going to want to then watch every single movie in the book, all 55 of them. You'll love it. Okay, now for the plugs. If you enjoy this podcast, it would be a big help if you go to iTunes, if you have an account, and rate and review the show. You can also subscribe there. You can also go to Podbean at damngoodmoviememories.podbean.com. You can also subscribe there. You can check us out on Facebook and get all of our updates. You can also check us out on YouTube. Okay, until next week, we'll talk to you later. Oh!